I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. This is episode 148, and I'm your host, Tiffany Clark. For today's episode, I wavered back and forth over and over on whether I should cover this famous date on a main, full-size episode, or if I should make it the subject of a mini-episode. Ultimately, I decided to feature it as a mini-episode because I don't think a lot of people know very much about the subject, and I wanted to give a lot of details about it, rather than just a few details before moving on to other headlines from that day. Besides that, this event wasn't just a one-day thing. It made headlines for a long time. Today's episode date is November 20th, 1969, and I'm taking our headline of the day from the front page of the San Francisco Examiner. It says, Indians back on Alcatraz for two days. Friends, this is the story of the Native American occupation of Alcatraz. Never heard of it? Well, according to the internet, you're not alone. Unless you lived through it, today might be the first time you're hearing about this event. First, I'm going to start with a little history of Alcatraz, as in farther back than today's episode date. The U.S. government purchased Alcatraz Island, a.k.a. The Rock, clear back in 1849. It's located about one and a half miles offshore from San Francisco, and it's about 22 acres in size, has very little vegetation on it, and at the time that the government purchased it, it was pretty much a home to seabirds like pelicans, and that was it. And actually, the word Alcatraz comes from a Spanish word for pelicans, according to one source. My Spanish is not very strong. A few years later, the first lighthouse on the California coast was built on Alcatraz Island. In 1859, it became a home for the army. And then two years later, it became a home for military offenders. The use of the island changed many times over the years. But the biggest change came in 1934, when it became the site of a federal prison. That's what most people know about Alcatraz. Many movies and documentaries have been made about the escapes or attempted escapes from the prison. And nowadays, because of those escapes, many people go to the prison for tours. I've been there a couple times myself. But for different reasons, the prison was expensive to operate. And the government started looking for different options. It ended up being used as a prison for only 29 years and all of the prisoners were transferred to other areas in 1963. That's pretty much when the debate over what to do with the island began. Everyone seemed to have an opinion on how it should be used. The federal government still owned it, but they didn't necessarily want or need it. The city of San Francisco wanted it, but they didn't want to spend a bunch of money to get a chunk of land that was very limited in what it could be used for. San Francisco figured they were saved when a millionaire from Texas told them he'd like to buy it and turn it into a tourist area. He proposed putting a space museum on the island. Remember, man first walked on the moon just a couple of months before this famous date. He also wanted to use part of the island to recreate what San Francisco would have been like in the 1890s. 
kind of a living history museum of sorts. And to top it all off, he wanted to build a 364-foot-tall tower with a torch on top so that the West Coast had a landmark just like New York had the Statue of Liberty. To make his tourist site more enticing to San Francisco, the wealthy Texan told them he would pay the city 1% of the site's earnings every year, and he would initially pay them $2 million, which is the amount they would have to pay to buy it from the federal government. And in return, he would get to lease the land for 60 years. It was a win-win situation for everyone involved. Except, residents hated the idea. They thought the idea of a statue was crude, and that the historic village sounded tacky. The city had to backtrack the plan they'd already approved after so many people complained. Another group wanted to come in and set off dynamite, and drop bombs on the old prison and the island, so that it had a look of ancient ruins. They thought they could make it look like the Acropolis in Athens, and draw in tourists that way. Another enterprising man was fighting for Alcatraz to be reopened as a prison. He pointed out that San Quentin Prison to the north of San Francisco was located right on the waterfront. But since the prison had high walls, and the inmates weren't allowed to go outside very much, the waterfront views were being wasted on them. He suggested that by moving everyone from San Quentin to Alcatraz, the property at San Quentin could then be divided up and parceled out, and the state would actually end up receiving a lot of money back in property taxes. Still, others thought the island should just be left alone and given back to the pelicans. Well, while all of these people were squabbling back and forth on what to do with the rock, a group of Native Americans decided they were going to make the decision once and for all. They were going to claim the island for themselves. They made an initial attempt in 1964, and then again on November 9th, but both of those occupations only lasted a couple of hours. They made their final attempt just before dawn on the morning of November 20th, 1969. Four different groups of Native Americans, totaling about 90 people, sailed across San Francisco Bay and landed at Alcatraz, claiming the abandoned island for themselves. When asked what the General Services Administration was going to do about it, since they were the landlord of the island, they said they didn't have any plans to do anything. To them, it looked like the occupiers only had enough supplies for about two days, and as long as they didn't harm anything, since rumors were growing around that they'd cut off the telephone lines to the island, no arrest warrants would be issued. While everyone was getting settled on the island, Dean Shavers, the spokesperson for a group called Indians of All Tribes, held a press conference. He told everyone that this was their way of showing that the island should be turned into a center for Native American studies. They also wanted to form an American Indian spiritual center to study their ancient religions. And last but not least, they wanted an Indian center of ecology to help fight pollution. San Francisco had previously had an American Indian center, but it burned down the month before. He also announced that the group was more than willing to buy the island. That is, they would buy it for $24 worth of glass beads and some red cloth. That, of course, was a reference to Native Americans selling the island of Manhattan to the Dutch back in the 1600s under questionable circumstances. 
Anyway, Dean Chavers told everyone that none of the people on the island were armed with weapons, and they didn't want violence to have any part in their occupation of Alcatraz. Meanwhile, Richard Oakes, a San Francisco State University student, took charge of the people on the island. He was born and raised on the Mohawk Indian Reservation that sits at the border between New York and Canada. The 27-year-old was already the father of five children after he had married a woman and then adopted her kids. Reporters flocked to the island in their own boats as soon as they heard what was happening. Richard Oakes told them, quote, We believe we have squatters' rights under the 1868 Treaty with the United States government. He was referring to a treaty made 100 years earlier with the Sioux Indians and the U.S. government stating that they could claim unoccupied or abandoned government land. I'll note here that there was a couple on the island who lived there as caretakers, and when they saw that children came with a Native American group, they asked permission from the government to feed the kids out of their food supplies if the Native Americans ran out of food because they didn't want the kids harmed. Oaks insisted they had enough supplies for what their needs were. The men, women, and children moved into the former warden's home and the guard housing and then set about making the island their own, mostly by way of graffiti. They painted a message on the water tower that said, Peace and Freedom. Welcome. Home of the Free Indian Land. Some of the other buildings on the island were painted with things like Red Power, and Custer had it coming. They claimed that it was okay with them that the island didn't have a great source of fresh water, or that it was underdeveloped, because most of them had grown up on reservations under similar circumstances. President Richard Nixon didn't want to cause an even bigger problem by forcing the group to leave the island, so his administration decided that as long as they weren't bothering anyone else, they could stay, until they got tired and left. The government did send people to try to negotiate with them a couple of times, but it never worked. The occupiers wanted the deed to the island. What was supposed to only last for a couple of days got so much attention that other Native Americans started to flock to the island. They were ready to be part of the movement. At one point, the population of Alcatraz swelled to more than 600 people. The group formed their own government on the island. They set up a clinic, they set up a kitchen, they set up a public relations department, they even set up a nursery and grade school for the kids on the island. And, of course, they had a security force. According to History.com, they called their security the Bureau of Caucasian Affairs, as a riff on the Bureau of Indian Affairs, since they hated that term. The security force would patrol the shoreline and keep an eye out for intruders. They also set up a radio station and would broadcast from the island. They called it Radio Free Alcatraz. Back on the mainland, the group had a lot of supporters. They would help by organizing supply runs to the rock, leaving from Pier 49, and by getting and organizing donations. People sent canned food and clothing and thousands of dollars in cash. Even the celebrities of the time got involved and put their money behind the cause. Other celebrities actually visited the island. Merv Griffin, Anthony Quinn, Jane Fonda, and even the man in black himself, Johnny Cash, made trips across the bay to support the occupiers. 
the popular rock band Credence Clearwater Revival donated a boat to the group. Fittingly, the boat was then named Clearwater. Things were going better than Richard Oakes could have ever imagined. They stayed on the island through the rest of November and December. But when the new year came along, things on the island started to change. A lot of the people who had been living there were college students. And while they'd had fun and thought it was a great cause, they knew they couldn't stay there forever. And they had to get back to school because new semesters were about to start at the universities they attended. The people who replaced them were often, quote, vagrants who care more for living rent-free than fighting for the protest's original cause. Richard Oakes said that photographers and hippies would come to the island, eat their food, use up their supplies, and then leave. Those who were actually living on the island and who were dedicated to the cause had to spend their time cleaning up the mess left by all of the visitors. Originally, alcohol and drugs were completely banned from the island. But with more and more visitors and residents coming, that soon changed, and both things were freely flowing on the island. And then tragedy struck for Richard Oakes and his family. In January of 1970, his 12-year-old daughter was playing inside the prison when she fell from one of the stairwells. She did not survive the fall. Richard Oakes couldn't take living there anymore, so he and his wife packed up their things and their other children and moved away from the island. The activists left on the island were at odds with each other on how things should be run and what the goals and purpose of the occupation and island should be. Tragedy would again strike the Oakes family on September 20th, 1972. Richard Oakes drove to a YMCA camp to pick up a friend, and what happened next has been debated by many. There was some sort of disagreement with a security guard, and the unarmed Oakes was shot and killed. He was just 30 years old. His death stunned the Native American activist community. Anyway, after Richard and his family left Alcatraz, some thought the occupation would dwindle and die, but it didn't. The occupiers stayed, and other leaders stepped up. One of those was Lenata Warjack, who was actually born and raised on the reservation just a few miles from where I live now, and who eventually went on to get her PhD and become a university professor. In May of 1970, the government finally decided it was time to take action. They tried to negotiate and do things peacefully, but it wasn't working. So, they did the easiest thing they could think of. They cut off the power to the island. A few weeks later, a fire broke out and burned multiple historical buildings on the island. Things were not looking good for the occupiers. More and more and more people left until there was just a few remaining stragglers. But those stragglers were strong, and they stayed on the island for another year. The only reason they left was because the government finally decided enough was enough. On June 11, 1971, one year and nine months after the occupation began, armed federal marshals sailed to the island and kicked out all of the remaining holdouts. At that time, there were just six men, five women, and four children left on the island. The group may not have received the deed to Alcatraz Island, 
but they did bring attention to their situation, and they helped to bring about the ending of the government's termination policy, which was pretty much the government's efforts to get Native Americans off their reservations and assimilate them into mainstream American society. A month after the occupation ended, President Nixon implemented a new policy that he called, quote, self-determination without termination. He said, the first Americans, the Indians, are the most deprived and most isolated minority group in our nation. On virtually every scale of measurement, employment, income, education, health, the condition of the Indian people ranks at the bottom. Since the occupation, the Indian Health Service budget has doubled and laws have been passed to help the Native Americans. Two years after the occupation, Alcatraz Island officially opened as a national park. The tours of the island are mostly of the prison, but for years you could still see the graffiti left by those who occupied the island from 1969 to 1971. Over the years it faded and faded and faded until it became unreadable. That is, until 2012. That year, the government did something that probably came as a huge surprise to a lot of people. While they were restoring and updating the water tower on Alcatraz Island, they paid for the graffiti to be restored and put back on the water tower, just like it looked in 1969. They even brought in Native Americans to trace over the old lines and repaint the words so that they had an exact copy. Peace and freedom. Welcome home of the free Indian land. A spokeswoman for the National Park Service said that preserving graffiti isn't something they typically do, and I can imagine a lot of that is because they don't want to encourage people to deface important landmarks and natural beauty. But the National Park Service decided that in the case of the water tower, the graffiti was a very important part of the history of the island, and they decided it was more important to restore it rather than get rid of it. The spokeswoman said, The water tower was the occupation's most outwardly focused message to the world, and it is an important part of the island's history. The National Park Service also installed a permanent exhibit on the island using photos and videos of the occupation. Nowadays, Alcatraz gets about 1.4 million visitors every year. If you've never been, you need to take a ferry ride from San Francisco over to the island. You're given a headset to listen to tales of the island as you walk through the grounds and the old prison. Most people only remember Alcatraz for the famous escapes and the infamous people who were inmates there, like Al Capone, Whitey Bulger, Machine Gun Kelly, and the Birdman of Alcatraz, Robert Stroud, whose story I shared on a different episode of this podcast. Every year, Native Americans will gather on Alcatraz Island on Thanksgiving Day and Columbus Day. Some of those who go there on those days were part of the original occupation. One of the men who often goes on those days, as well as many days in between, is Eloy Martinez, who is a member of the Southern Ute tribe. He and his wife lived on Alcatraz for over a year during the occupation with their four-year-old son, and he likes to tell visitors about the other part of Alcatraz's history. In 2015, Iloe got to participate in restoring some more of the graffiti on the island. I have not been to Alcatraz since the exhibits have been placed and since the graffiti has been restored, 
So I think it's time for another trip to the island. Friends, thanks for joining me for today's mini episode. I know a lot of people who didn't live through that era had no idea that the occupation of Alcatraz Island even took place. And I'm glad efforts are being made by many people, including myself, to tell forgotten stories or stories from history that have been brushed over for something more glittery and sunshiny and nice. I'm going to share a link to a documentary about the occupation in the additional history headlines you probably miss Facebook group. It's kind of long, but it's really interesting and has a lot of video footage of the actual events. Then join me again on Monday for an all-new full-size episode. And this one is going to be very special. You do not want to miss this special Halloween episode. Talk to you later.